yeah, that's one of the things that, that limits people when they when they compromise on those other things, which to me are much more important, which is the Welcome back to Dash Not Insider, where we help you become a better property investor. And on today's show, I'm joined by Nick Densher. If you are familiar with the podcast and if you've listened to the podcast before, you will know Nick. He's been around for a while. He's one of the OGs of the Dashdot team. He started as a Dashdot client, joined Dashdot as a team member. He's now one of our senior property acquisition managers. I think he said he's done about $90 million worth of transactions himself. He's bought a lot of properties for himself and but also for clients. And through that, he has learned a lot of lessons. He's learned, learned a lot of lessons around managing risk and assessing performance, and that is really what we dig into today. So we talk about some really interesting and unique things, things like how to think about managing risk and exit strategies, how to think about buffers, um, account management to make things like life easier as an investor, and also things like calculated performance with unusual metrics like return on equity and yield on debt, and some probably interesting uh, metrics which you haven't heard before and I think you would benefit from. So. If that sounds interesting to you, then you're in for a treat. And I encourage you to whatever platform you're on. If it's if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. If you're on Spotify, hit the subscribe button. If you're on Apple, leave us a review and a, just wherever you are, click the buttons, do the thing. It means the world to us. And of course, if you find this valuable, make sure you share it with a friend, family member, or loved one. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Hey, Nick, welcome back to Dashlot Insider. How are you? I'm stoked. I'm really excited to be here. I love the new format. Been listening, listening avidly, and um, I'm really enjoying the the interviewing of real people that are that are kind of managing. I guess what more more property investors are kind of managing a smaller portfolios. We're not at the end of having hundreds of properties, and we're obviously at the higher end of where the majority investors are, but we're not at the hundreds of properties. You know, so it's really cool to have an everyday investor, I guess, talking yeah. talking about how they're managing things, which has been great. Awesome, love it. Speaking of managing things, you've got a pretty decent portfolio these days, which I wouldn't mind kind of getting some get a little bit of like a a rough outline on that in a second. But you are you're in a you're in the process of selling a property at the moment. Why are you doing that? Tell me about that. Yeah, so the, there's a couple of reasons. It's probably a, it's a it's a longer conversation, which I think we should keep touching on. Um, the reason I'm selling it immediately is it's not performing particularly well, um, which I kind of, I've had some indications that it may not perform particularly well in terms of capital growth. It's not so that why it's not performing well is it's not getting great yield, hasn't got great capital growth, and particularly in the environment we're in where, where the exodus to affordability, where people are going to cheaper, cheaper properties, generally speaking, this is a higher end property. It's still a multi-dwelling, but it's, um, it's in a higher end section of Townsville and it's, um, so it's not getting as good a yield, and I, my eyes lit up with it because it was in that quite desirable section of Townsville, and it's um, had you know a stone's throw from the coast and near a kids park and and a pathway, and and I actually showed it to my partner, to my wife, and her li- eyes lit up as well. So there was a lot of heart in it, and it's also on quite a large lot, so that that excited me as well because next door had a um, three units on it, three separate units. This one has one kind of Queenslander that's been converted into into three units, the one that I purchased. I thought, yeah, we can put some extra units down the back. And then as I've dug into it, I've kind of realized that I can actually make money a lot easier and with less risk than by doing development. So I've dug into it. I've, I've got some indications of the costs from engineers and from planners and the risks associated with it. So there is obviously risk in putting money down to do the investigations to prove it up and everything and then find out that maybe council doesn't want that there or that sort of thing. 
And I've, I've realized, you know, I'm actually better off just doing what I know works and what is relatively low risk, which is buying the right place at the right time and um, cashing in on that capital growth with the, with the very low risk, particularly with the tools at hand from Dashdot. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Because um, for those of you, for you know, there's probably listeners who don't know your backstory, but you originally came to Dashdot as a client, and now you are one of the, you know, you're one of the almost we'll call you one of the OGs, I think, Nick, in terms of in terms of, in terms of the team. So it's very interesting because what you're talking about there almost reminds me of kind of like how you started when you first came to Dashdot because you you'd already sort of bought a property where you were you know, adding value, you added a granny flat to it, and then you kind of were like a little bit skeptical. Do you want to kind of talk me through that part of the journey as well? Because I think it's very interesting to kind of relate this part of the journey to that. And then I'd love to kind of talk about how people can start to think about assessing their portfolio performance so they know how to make better decisions. So you want to take us back a little bit there? Yeah. So it, as I tell this story, it, it becomes evident that I'm quite a slow learner because this was, um, whatever it was, six or seven years ago, I bought a property. This was in Bellingen on the mid-north coast. And um, I bought it and put a granny flat on it, and that actually did reasonably well. So I bought a four, it was an older four by two built in in the nineteen eighties, and I put a removal house on it. So chopped the house in half, put it on the back of a truck, moved it in, and got it approved under the granny flat provisions. And it ended up yielding at something like six six point two percent or something like that. But in the process, it was a lot of effort and a fair bit of risk, and I, I'm. You know, gratefully, I had some backing from my family to bridge the funds while I did the building before I refinanced to pay them back, that sort of thing. So I was in a pretty privileged position in that respect. And then I was ready to buy my next property after I'd finished that one and had this my, my eyes set on the same thing. And then I came across Dashdot and I was actually talking to you, Goose, and I told you what I was going to do and this is the property I'm going to buy. And you said, yeah, that, that's all right, but I reckon I could do better. And I was like, okay, well, prove it then. Show me what you can do. And if you can do better, I'll buy it. And you did that. And what we actually bought was something in um, Western Brisbane in um, Flind- Flinders View out at sort of Ipswich Way. And off the bat, it was getting 6.5% or something like that. And it's performed equally as well in terms of capital growth as Bellingen, which is quite an upmarket desirable area to, to be for the summer hippie set. And yeah, the one in Flinders View has done the same thing. And that really, really changed my view of how, how to make money or a strategy to make money in, in property property investment. Whereas before I thought the way to do it was to intensify, always intensify, granny flats, duplexes, that kind of thing. And then I, I realized that you can, you can. and before that, I actually said this to you, Goose, at the time. I said, you can't pick the market because, you know, I, that's it's not possible because if you could do it, everyone would be doing it. And then since going through that process, I've seen that it worked for me in that sense. And then obviously working at Dashdot, I see it you know, every day that it can be done and we do it repeatedly and consistently and with little if any error yeah what would you say yeah what would you say to someone outside right now who's a skeptic someone who's sitting there going you can't predict the market you can't pick it you can't time the market the only way to make money in real estate is to intensify because because it's impossible to know what the market's going to do you know all that kind of stuff what would you say to someone knowing what you know now because you've how many properties do you think you've bought now on behalf of our clients like how many properties do you think you've bought for investors now yeah, well, we looked at it the other day. It was something like two hundred and about eighty-nine million dollars worth of property. So yeah. we've seen a lot happen, and we we've been around. Like I've been working with Dashlot for close to three years now, and so we've seen those properties perform over that time and had the evidence on the table. Obviously, it's not a twenty-year time frame, but um, we can look 
at the data and see what it's done historically and what's a likely capital growth cycle. And then we've seen that play out over that similar kind of period for a typical capital growth cycle for those properties that we purchased. So what I would say to people is, let us show you, I guess, or give it a go. And if it's wrong, the worst case will be you won't get growth. But if it's right, you'll stumble on this same situation that I like accidentally landed on by finding Dashdot, that um, there's a very relatively low risk and sure way to improve your wealth position and get you to your goals without a whole lot of effort, to be honest. And that that was the big thing about the, the intensification too. There's risk and there's a whole lot of effort too. So what I'd say to clients when they come through and they and they want to do subdivision or some kind of intensification, I say, well, look, if it's a hard choice, if it's something you wanted to do, it's a, if it's on your bucket list and you really want to do a, de- a development or a subdivision or whatever, or build some units, if that's what you want to do before you die, go for it and do it. But don't do it to make money because there's lower risk, easier ways to do it. Yeah, 100%. It's so interesting you say that because a friend of mine just uh, messaged me earlier today and he said, hey, could I get some advice? I'm thinking about buying this property and it's a, it's a townhouse in a nice area in a city. And, and I sort of said, okay, well, why are you buying it? And it's because, you know, it's they want to live there. It's close, good school. They've made friends in the area, all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, and, and also they can afford to do it and it's not going to stop them investing and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm sort of like, well, then- like then that's the decision, right? So if you if you're making it because if you're making a decision like that because of all of these other factors that aren't, is this the best investment decision? It's like that's like saying it's like someone messaging me and saying, Hey, should I buy this new car? Is it a yeah. property investment decision? It's like, well, it's got nothing to do with property investment because you're buying it because you want the new car, right? So it's kind of the same thing. And and I think a lot of people do have this kind of or actually probably aren't aware that their bias towards doing things like I'm going to buy something and subdivide it and build on it is actually not necessarily bound in facts and figures and more in an emotional desire or a kind of perception of the human that they want to be or what that means. You know, I want to be someone who does this kind of thing versus is this the best way for me to make money in real estate? Because, you know, and I think there is sort of some propensity to be like, yeah, yeah, I've got this thing going on. I've done the same thing. You know, we bought a property we were like, yeah, we're going to subdivide it. We're going to put build a duplex on there, or we're going to, you know, subdivide it and, and build two houses on there and all that kind of stuff. And and literally, we've owned that property for about four years now. And literally, every time I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm going to go, but let's go do it. I'll start running the numbers again. And I'm like, I just can't. I can't make sense. Like, why would I do that? Like, totally, make yeah. sense. It's like I just can't actually make it make sense. And so, if you can detach from that, so yeah, what do you think? Um, I'm interested to know, like, do you think that there's a, a correlation between that thinking generally and the reason that most property investors don't really get very far? Because, you know, statistically speaking, the average investor in Australia owns 1.42 properties, I think it is. So most people aren't getting past the first one. So what do, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's definitely got a part to play. And, and what a, a lot of clients that come through the door don't understand is that there's significant trade-offs in order to select specifically for that subdivision or intensification potential. If, if you have it as a nice to have, not driving the selection, then that's a different story. And, and you, may, you may come across something that's going to have those kind of potentials. But if that's driving your selection, generally speaking, if you're in a market that's at the right stage of the cycle to be purchasing in, those opportunities are priced into the, the purchase price of the property. So the market's already accounted for the subdivision potential. You're paying more than you would for an equivalent house without the subdivision potential in order to have that subdivision potential. So you end up 
in a in a worse off cash flow position because you're paying getting lower yield higher capital purchase price and that's one of the key things that limits you in your, the broadening of your footprint in your portfolio so i think that's a fair comment yeah that's one of the things that, that limits people when they compromise on those other things which to me are much more important which is the capital growth prospects and the cash flow they compromise on those in order to select for value, for a significant value add and that that disadvantages them in the medium term mm. so a lot of people though don't really understand how their portfolio is performing anyway i would say right i think a lot of people probably aren't really necessarily pragmatically even aware of like what's happening in their property portfolio i mean how do you how do you think about that like how do you think about assessing performance in your portfolio because yeah i mean my suggestion in that statement is that just most people don't even really understand whether it's good or bad you know f- for that matter mm. Yeah, that, that's a, a fair comment too. Like m- often, well, like I haven't done any research on this. I'm just guessing. The majority of people assess the performance of the property at purchase. Like they know that it's what it yields and how it compares to the market in terms of the price they paid and so on. But often that drops off towards the end. And I'm the same as that as well. Like I've gone down that path as well. But particularly as interest rates have gone up and things are starting to run a bit close to the wire, I've taken a much more active approach in looking at how my property portfolio is performing on a property by property basis and that's another factor that's feeding into selling off that property so as i mentioned it had a lower yield it's had lower capital growth and as i assess it against the other properties it probably will do all right if it was the only property i have there'd be no reason to sell it because it will do all right but it's it fails on the can i do better test and when i couple that alongside the risk that my portfolio is facing and as an individual I'm facing with interest rates going up, that's kind of the um, additional factor that's put it, help kind of encourage me to put it on the market, I guess. Yeah, nice. Nice. I love that. So you came into this podcast with a few few tips that you wanted to share with people, right? So what we've got is we've got three keys to assessing your property portfolio performance and maximizing returns and minimizing risk. I'd love to dig into these because I think there's some really good stuff in here. The first one you've got, the first one you've kind of palmed over to me is maintaining a buffer and making sure you've got the right insurance. Do you want to talk to me about that point and more specifically how you learned the lesson that's allowed you to understand that that's an important thing? Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good case study because it's the same property again. And what happened with this property is I had a tenant that stopped paying for whatever reason, they lost their job or something. Um, we gave them a vacate notice. They wouldn't get out of the building. It was over Christmas period. So we put in, my rental manager put in the appropriate paperwork to go to the courts and, and get them evicted basically. And over that period, I've, I've probably lost about six months of rent waiting, going through that process. As I called up my insurer, I've realized that I actually wasn't insured from a landlord insurance. Um, for whatever reason, I'd renewed the strata insurance because it's a, it's a multi, but I just missed through administration, administrative error, just because I get so many emails, all that sort of stuff. I just missed renewing the landlord insurance. And so that's cost me something of the order of six or seven grand, that, that one little mistake. And so as boring as it is around insurance, it's kind of given me a, a strong lesson, which it's, I think I really enjoy sharing with everyone because what I've realized from that is, you know, I was running around trying to get the cheapest insurance and to get the cheapest insurance you pay annually as opposed to monthly but the snare with paying annually is that you have to physically go and renew it every year and if you haven't got a whole lot of time it's easy for that to slip through the net which is what happened to me so since then what i've done is i've changed everything to monthly pay a little bit more 
but it automatically renews. It'll it'll go on forever unless I call up and stop it. Um, so that's yeah, right. been a big lesson for me is kind of keeping the bigger picture in um in in frame. Cost me maybe two hundred bucks extra a year to pay by the month, but it mitigates that risk of potentially being out of pocket six grand, which is what's happened with with this one. Yeah, super interesting. And there's a, there's a lot of good lessons in there about making your portfolio easy to manage as well. Like as many things as you can put on autopilot as possible, it's the way to go because otherwise you've just got too much chance of human error. And also just a, just as a, a side note on that, I think another, just in terms of like a portfolio management thing, I think another thing a lot of people miss is not getting their property managers to basically handle all the bills. If, you, totally. if, if it's at all possible, get your property manager to pay it. And even if you have to transfer money into their account so that they can pay it, it's still you're still going to be far... Because at the end of the year, you've got one statement that's got all your expenses on it for tax purposes. Right. It makes it so much easier. And so what about having a buffer? Like, did you actually have a buffer in place, enough of a buffer to be able to cushion your portfolio for six months of no rent? Across the portfolio, I did, but not for that individual property. Let me take a look. Before I talk to that, let me take a little step back so that you touch on some really important points there. And I've had some learnings on that too, which is which mm-hmm. I think is worth sharing. And that is when you buy a property, obviously, if you buy one property, it doesn't really matter if you have messy accounts and you've got, you're paying from your rental management costs from your personal account. It's not the end of the world. But once you get a, above a few properties, it starts to get pretty messy. So what I've realized and what I would have done from the start, if I did it again, is to make sure you have an account for every property and that's regardless of whether it's in a trust or in your personal name if it's in a trust you st- and you've got multiple properties in that trust you still have separate accounts for each property and you have a credit card or a visa debit card joined to each individual account for each individual property and it just makes that admin so much easier exactly like you said Goose. at the end of the year you get your statement from your rental manager I do a transaction printout for that specific account for that specific property and I also get a, a loan statement and just give that all to my accountant and away you go. So I don't run, I've, I've got seven properties, but I don't run any accounting software and it's a relatively simple process to um, provide all the info to my accountant to do that work at the end of the year. Yeah, it's super interesting. Have you got any other, as someone who's got seven properties, which is, you know, it's a significant portfolio. 90% of property investors never get past two properties, right? What other what other things have you learned about managing your portfolio? We were kind of talking about this before we started recording that you're like, you know, you're not you're still working it out. But I'd love to know you've you've probably got the curse of knowledge where you've actually worked out a whole bunch of things that other people don't know. Yeah, I think like that's been the key learning learning for me when I just went through the managing of your accountants accounts because often that's you know there's so much admin around the purchase of the property, getting your loan, and all that sort of carry on that um often you forget about the those simple structures like your accounting and then you get to a, to tax time and you've got this massive mess to, to unpack so that was the biggest learning for me that, that i'd bring to the table on that yeah nice nice and so back to buffers how do you think about buffers in your portfolio you know a lot of people wonder that you know some people when they go and buy an investment property they spend their last dollar yeah. getting the investment property do you think people should have a buffer when they buy a property is it essential do you think that people, is there a rule of thumb that you use to think about how much cash you should sit, have sitting in a bank account per property or for your portfolio? And also, how do you think it? Does it sit in your savings account? Do you put it in an offset? Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I work on about three months of rent. So I want to be able to not have any rental income and still have that cash to pay the mortgage over that, that period. And for me, that works out at about five grand per property. 
and I just have that, I have my allocated account for that individual property and it just sits in that account. So it's not, if ideally I'd have offsets, but all my accounts don't have offsets. So it just sits in there and then it's kind of the buffer. So it may go down as the mortgage repayments come out, but then it'll go back up as the rent goes in. So it just creates that bit of a buffer. So back to that property in Townsville. So I exceeded my five grand, but because as you get a bigger portfolio, obviously I've got say seven lots of five grand. So it turns out that some of the other property, the other properties buffers had to um, cover the loss for the property that exceeded the buffer that I had in place for that specific property. So I guess there's a, there's an argument that as you get bigger, you need less buffer per property because you've got a, a bigger overall bucket mm. to to compensate for things. But that's where I work on about five grand per property. Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, that's really interesting. I heard about a thing in the US, and I think it's called the one percent rule, and it's like you should keep one percent of the value of the property for maintenance. Is what I was reading about the other day because I'm I'm currently in the US and I was just doing a, a real estate summit here in in, in Miami. I was like. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. When you hear a rule like that, you're like, oh, there's a rule and I could follow that. Mm. If you think about it, if you think about it, that's only $3,000 for a a $300,000 property. Yeah. Right? And it's like, that's not, I mean, maybe for maintenance, but I mean, that's, even that seems a little bit, a little bit short. Yeah, I think it does. I think that, that would be, that would be about the same order of cost I'm talking about for the emergency fund, which, yeah, probably that, that caters for, in my situation that caters for unforeseen maintenance so so it probably is about right actually so a fan a fan dies and the tenant asks for a new fan i just get that done and momentarily it drops to four thousand five hundred because the fan costs 500 bucks to get installed um and then it slowly creeps up again but the point is i always try to get it up to that five grand again before i start you know if i'm siphoning money off to go and buy groceries or whatever or go on a holiday which which is all what i aspire to do have my property portfolio improving my lifestyle but i don't draw the, all that money out unless it's above that minimum threshold that i talked about so yeah it does momentarily go down and it does cover maintenance in practice so it's a valid, it's a good point mm. uh, did you say and i don't want to dig into your personal finances too much would you say you don't have any offsets or you just don't have some on some of the properties just on some other properties because the reason was because at the time i just didn't have the what's the word, the luxury of time to argue with the bank about getting an offset. I just needed the loan to get done. And so I said, just do it to my broker. And so some of those loans I've ended up without offsets because the particular package that they came up with didn't have an offset at the time. Yeah. So um, I don't know if this is appropriate for your situation or not. And there's obviously different ways of thinking about it, but I'll, I'll mention this because it might spark a thought for somebody else who's listening to this. So uh, for Gabby and I, we also uh, have a number of properties and not all of our property uh, loans have offset accounts. In fact, we have, I think, two offset accounts, maybe three or something like that. But what we do is we actually direct all of the repayments to come out of one account, which is uh, linked to the, linked to an offset. And so then we pile all of the savings that we have, right? So we don't have cash just sitting in bank accounts. We put it all like... There's, I think there's three offsets in total and two of them have got very, very small amounts in them. But one of them has got a very large amount in it relative to relative to the to the others, which basically means that like you're at least you're squashing the mortgage on one really deeply. And so you're still mm-hmm. getting the net benefit. You're still yep. getting the net benefit of leveraging that offset against at least one asset. And so that way you still don't have cash sitting in bank accounts and then you can just link all your loans to come out of the same account. So you end up having having one account, you can have your buffers in there, you can have all your stuff in there. And that's kind of like a almost like a sinking fund, but you get the benefit of having the offset deeply mm. offsetting 
at least one asset. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I see the benefit of that and it's kind of a stepping stone towards the whole debt recycling if you've got a PPOR and you, you use that to yeah. pay down the loan and then redraw for investment purposes. But let's not get on that road for now. But the, the challenge for me, and, and it, everything's got a trade-off, like, and what you described is awesome in terms of reducing your interest repayments. But for me, I'm not a very detail-oriented person and, and looking at having all those mix all those repayments coming out of one account for different purposes for different properties would just fry my brain and having to go and reconcile those and and see i guess like it's it's kind of like an automatic chart of accounts by having an account for every property so Mm. you can just go and see how's that particular property going well actually that was meant to have five grand and it's gone down to two what's going on there that kind of thing so i don't have to go and reconcile one account and see which one's contributing more than the other or that sort of thing so yes, there's a loss in terms of the interest I'm not offsetting by having everything in an offset account. But to me, the trade-off of having um, knowing what's going on is better for me. And, and it's, it comes down to those trade-offs. Again, it's, it's the exact same with paying insurance monthly. So yes, I'm costing me more, but it's offsetting that risk of a bigger cost, um, which I unfortunately experience. Yeah, yeah totally. So I want to ask you a couple of questions, and it's probably going to be also related to the to the story that we started with as well. So how do you think investors should plan for exits on the way in? Like, do you think how do you, how do you think about that? Do you think that people should be thinking like, okay, what's my kind of like worst case scenario planning? Because a lot of people think about exits like, what are my exit strategies? Ooh, I can develop it, or I could whatever. Mm. And they think about those kind of exit strategies. But what about what about things like planning ahead? Maybe not even exits, right? But like management strategy, like planning ahead for things like what are you going to do if interest rates go up to a certain thing or what are you going to do if x so how do you think about that because you've obviously kind of gone been going through this process with this with this property that you are you're selling as well so what are your thoughts around that yeah and I, I think it's about managing or, or um having eyes on the sort of month to month of how your portfolio is performing because what the worst case is the worst thing to happen is you're going you're going backwards and you don't know it and then a sale of your portfolio of a property from your portfolio is forced upon you by the bank and it's it's done on their terms then it's not done you know in a considered way and that's where you can end up you know essentially fire sailing stuff or sending a prop selling a property that's not in a particularly good time in the cycle to sell or it may not be in the condition you'd like it to be in to sell so if you do need to sell you want to be able to predict when that's going to have to happen in terms of, of when you're going to run out of funds, basically. So if at some point, the, the key thing is going to be, as interest rates go up, at some point, your property portfolio is going to be losing money, not accruing money. And you have a certain amount that you can contribute. So I have a certain amount from my income that I can contribute to subsidize the property portfolio as interest rates go up. But there's a limit to that. And then I need to know at what point are interest rates going to be at before I know I'm going backwards. And when I hit that point, I need to have a plan to for which what I'm going to do. And like you say, at that point in time, for me, it's probably not because I'm already gone. I'm already know I'm going backwards at that point. It's not an opportune time to go and throw more money at a property to do a development or that sort of thing. So to me, it's basically selling off a property, selling off the worst performing property. And that's where I'm at with this Townsville property. So as I look at it, I look at all the properties in my portfolio. I look at their yields and their, particularly their yields because the cash flow is what's important as the interest rates are going up. And I'm looking particularly at the yield on value, not the yield on purchase price. Yeah. Or yield on equity or yield on equity or yield on value? Yield on well, yeah. How do you, no, how do you right. think about that? You're right. It's yield, it's yield on equity because 
I'm looking for the property that I can relieve the most amount of debt and suffer the least cash flow impact from. So it's. Can you, can you talk, talk, talk us through that? Because yield on equity is not a commonly thought through type type thing, right? And so it's it's super interesting when you hear you hear a lot of investors talk about returns. And I think that we could probably do with leveling up our investment thinking. Like I don't think enough investors are thinking about things like internal rate of return or return on equity, right? Which is super interesting. Now, return on equity in very simple terms is, okay, let's say you bought a property and it's gone up in value by a million bucks. Let's just be super, super simple. It's gone up in value by a million dollars. Yahoo. And you're trying to work out should I keep it? Ooh, it's gone up by a million dollars. That's awesome. Or should I sell it? And it's like, well, if you sold it, how much capital would you have left? Or how much capital have you got in the asset? And what is the return that you're getting on that capital? And if you put that capital somewhere else, could you get a better return? Right. That is like that is the most pure way to actually assess the performance of your asset versus like, oh, it's got a high yield. It's got a high yield or some other kind of spurious top line kind of vanity metric in a certain sense. So do you consider that when you're thinking about selling a property? Do you go, okay, well, if I've got this much capital in the property and it's returning me this much on my money right now, and uh, if I sell it, obviously you've got selling costs and stuff like that. With the money I've got left over, can I get a greater return? Is that a is that a kind of like a thought process you go through? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'd call that the opportunity cost. So the opportunity cost that you're foregoing by having that that equity held in that property i guess and and there's a there's a tendency and i did this i do this as well and i to look at the yield on purchase price so obviously as the as the rents go up over time your yield's getting better and better and you're kind of rubbing your hands together going this is great now my property i paid 500 grand for it and now i'm getting a 10 percent yield five years later and what a great property but if you if you swap that lens like you just talked about and consider the equity that's tied up in that, you may only be getting, you may be able to redeploy that capital and get, you know, a bigger footprint and a, a similar, well, like, like I'm kind of mixing up my words here, but you'll come, you can get a lower yield on the purchase price, but you're getting a bigger footprint and your actual, that that's the main thing that you're trying to do in terms of building your wealth is that footprint because the capital growth is what builds your wealth. It's not the cash flow. So to sit there and sort of get excited about that cash flow, particularly early in your portfolio, cash flow on your purchase price is less important than the size of your footprint and the opportunity that presents in terms of the capital growth. Yeah, 100%. I think another mistake a lot of investors make is they, to your point, they calculate the yield on the purchase price. So let's say, let's say they buy a property and it's a 6% yield when they buy it on a, let's say, a $400,000 property. And then a year later, let's just for the purposes of the discussion, say that it's a $500,000 property. And they go, Yahoo. And I'm going to go, I'm going to leverage that back to whatever, 80 or 90%. So they've added a stack more debt to it. And let's just say it goes up by another 100 grand the next year and another 100 grand the next year. And every year they take 100 grand out of it and they go and invest it somewhere else. Now, after five years, maybe the rents have gone up significantly and versus the purchase price of 400 grand, maybe it's like a 10% yield. Like if you mm-hmm. said, how much rent am I getting today versus how much did I buy the property for? But in fact, every time you have re-leveraged it, you're effectively resetting the yield on the value, right? Because totally. you're saying, well, I'm now basically saying I'm going to almost like repurchase this in a sense because I'm pulling money out based on the current market value. So- you know, it might have been a four hundred grand property that you know over a year become at a six percent yield. That over a year becomes a five hundred becomes like a a six point seven percent yield. But if you then refinance it at five hundred percent, maybe it's down to a five point eight percent yield or something. You know what I mean? And so yep. thinking that through, which so you've kind of got like 
yield on equity, but you also got yield on debt as well. Like, so you've got to understand those those ratios too, because I think a lot of people can just have this this like you know this idea, this property that's been in my portfolio for five or ten years. It's got such a good yield. It's like yeah, but like, is it actually re- returning anything at all? Because you know you can very easily go deeply, deeply, deeply negative on a property that. If you're still assessing the yield on the purchase price, mm. you know, it's like, you know, it might be a 10% yield to be negative $10,000 cash flow because you keep pulling, pulling equity out. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's that's totally right. And that's another, I'm not, I think you might have just mentioned this, another another metric I, I look at. So I've got a spreadsheet with all these things in it that I update monthly as the interest rates change, which is monthly at the moment, as we know. And I look at yield on the loan. Did you say that in that discussion? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah. Yield on debt. Yep. Yield on debt and, and what I do to, and it makes it a really easy comparison to the interest rate. So what I do is generally speaking, my experience has been that your gross yield, you take about 2% off that to cover your holding costs, independent of interest. So your property management, your repairs and maintenance and your rate rates. So if I'm getting 6%, my net then is say 4%. And then I reconvert that back to a, a dollar figure. And then I convert that back to a percentage or a yield against the loan amount. So I'm basically taking off the holding costs and, and because I'm, a, I'm not a particularly detailed person, so I don't go through and chart all my, in, my insurance costs and everything. So I just work on that 2%, knock that off the income. Yeah, the income from the property. So not 2% of the gross yield off the income for the property and then convert that to a yield against your loan amount. And then if your loan is higher than that amount, then you know you're going backwards. Well, that's, that's how I looked at it. So when you're talking about that two percent rule, which again is not a it's not an exact rule, but as a as a kind of like a, a model, you're you're calculating that it should cover the operating expenses, but not the not the debt repayments, right? So that'd be yep. things like property management, maintenance, rates, water, all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting because that that number that you're looking at the the gross income minus the operating expenses, but not minus the debt cost, right? Or the or the loan servicing. That's actually called net operating income, NOI, right? So if that's basically your net operating income, your net operating income return over your... So it's a very, it's a really good metric to use. I think it's a good metric for a lot of people to use because you can look at net cash flow, which is super fun and interesting, but also the the debt component makes up is such a big variable. So if you've got a 0.5% difference on your interest rate, you could have a property which objectively speaking would be a really great performing asset if you were able to get different debt. And so then looking at the net op- operating income is kind of like, it's kind of like looking at the gross margin of a business and working mm. out, okay, is this a healthy business or not? And could I do something to adjust the additional expenses there? So that's super interesting. What do you think, like, what do you think is the most important thing for people to be thinking about strategically if they want to go and build a decent property portfolio? How do, how do you think people should think about that? I think Strategically, it comes back to the to the right place and the right time. So that you're looking for the cash flow and the capital growth to to give you the best opportunity to build your wealth as quickly as possible. So it's important to understand the different purposes of cash flow at different stages of your portfolio. So at the start, the purpose of the cash flow is to de-risk you, and that's what we've been talking about: calculating how much risk you're carrying based on your yield against your against your loan. That that tells me how much negative. Or, or positive the property is versus the interest rate. So that's about de-risking is, is the purpose of the cash flow in that sense. And the other important part is to improve or, pr- or preserve your serviceability. Less important at the moment because you pretty much can't preserve your serviceability with where interest rates are. 
but that's that's the purpose of that, and that's a broader strategy to get beyond those those couple, those two properties that most people get stuck at is to make sure you're getting decent cash flow, and also considering where that cash flow is going to go. So you're looking at that yield potential and making sure that you're in a place that's going to get capital growth, not in ten years, because pretty much generally speaking, from the data I've seen, most properties have a growth cycle within a 10 to 15 year period so you can pick throw a dartboard at the dart at the map and you could hit somewhere that's going to get you decent growth over a 15 year time frame but most people don't have that long to to wait so we want to get it right at the start of the capital growth cycle so you get that immediate growth and you can roll that that equity forward to to get to the footprint because to get to that most people's goal you need something of the order of two million dollars of a property footprint it's just about the minimum that I've seen after working with lots of clients. And to get to there, you need, when the markets are we buying at the moment, you need to the three to four to five properties to get to that. And most people don't get there, obviously. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, do you think it's fair to say that, I, well, I like to say that there's only three constraints in your property portfolio, and that's access to capital, access to debt, and access to cash flow. But if you And if you can systematically resolve any of those, you could probably simplify that a little bit, just say access to capital and access to debt, because you can't get debt if you don't have cash flow in your portfolio or as a human being. So it's almost like, if you can just optimize for making sure that you can get those two things consistently, then you'll achieve your property goals, whatever they are. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, and the, the cash flow component obviously goes to serviceability. And as you get more creative, I guess, or as you learn more strategies, there's ways that you can get around that the sort of serviceability buffers, like through different entities and such. But the cash flow then is even more important because then you're you're starting to take responsibility for your own cash flow position as opposed to relying on the bank saying yes you can afford this you actually have to ask yourself and look at your own budget and say can i afford this because i've kind of gone off off piste and actually doing i'm I'm getting more debt than what i'd ordinarily be able to carry and that's that's a position that i'm in i'm carrying more debt than than most people would be able to carry based on your income to loan ratio and that's why i spend a fair bit of time crunching these numbers and saying, look, when am I going to be going backwards and what am I going to do when that happens? Mm, Love it. Before we wrap up, are there any other kind of tips you want to give people around kind of like risk management or performance assessment so they can kind of make sure they don't come unstuck? Yeah, the only other one I I think of, so the other big risk is obviously losing your job, particularly in an environment like this where I'm contributing to my portfolio, so it's cash flow negative in the broader sense. It's important that you consider what if my company that I work for or my job went belly up and basically I manage that through income insurance through my super and that just gives you some confidence not if you lose your job I don't know if it covers that I don't think it does but if you if you got hit by a bus or something or you all of a sudden became terminally ill you don't want to have to fire sale everything you want to have some time to do a um you know a measured a measured response to the changed financial circumstances and that just gives you that little bit of breathing room so that's another sort of thing that helps me sleep at night to know that if i did die or if i did become incapacitated i don't just leave this massive load on my family with um not having any income to to manage this portfolio and rationalize it they they wouldn't rationalize it so sell off the, the poor performing or maybe they don't want their headache and they want to sell the whole lot off but they don't want to have to fire, fire sale it over the space of two months. They want to do it in a considered way. So that's kind of what helps me sleep at night. Nice. Love it. Nick, I've enjoyed this. Lots of nuggets in there. Lots of lessons learned from not only your own portfolio, but also helping you know hundreds of clients do the same. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's been good fun. I love it. Thanks, Gis. Awesome, man. See you soon.